Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 58, Chip Cosby. Chip Cosby is a musician. He's got his own gig with his brother called Cosby, and uh, he was also in River City High for a while, and before that, another band that he mentions in this podcast, whose name I forget, but uh, he is also a teacher at VCU. A teacher of the kind of shit that I'm into. Religion, spirituality, philosophy, all that stuff. I guess it's... I know one of the classes he's teaching is history of world religion, I think. I shouldn't say I know. I think that's what he said. Um, Easily verifiable, but, you know, then I would have to do some work or research or something. And that takes all the fun out of it for me. But you guys know that about me. Oh, me? My name's Curtis Payne. And this is my podcast, Tantric Conversation. Um, yeah, so Chip and I talk about all this stuff related to the nature of reality as I think the uh, people out of the East got a handle on very, very early on that is being borne out by science. And I'm equally interested in religion and science and uh, the... Gnostic way of approaching things as well as a synthetic knowledge way of approaching things and I don't I don't see them as mutually exclusive I find them really uh, complementary in my own experience I enjoy being able to use scientific tools to articulate things that I think are more uh, spiritual more uh, ephemeral more Gnostic you know a personal mystical experience described in terms of uh, Western science. I think the two go hand in hand very well. And I, I think I say in this podcast that when I see people, whether it's Ralph Feynman or Neil deGrasse Tyson, Carl Sagan, when those guys talk about science and their relationship with it, they sound like mystics. They sound like prophets. And I think, I don't think the two things are, are so different, except, you know, the aim of science is to be able to document, experiment, um, reveal truths and um, of course in the in the Buddhist world all of this shit can be broken down into it doesn't even exist but um and and, and science has kind of discovered that too that you know when you get down to the subatomic level things don't exist um, things aren't there it's uh, tendencies in field and time so they're really kind of saying the same thing. All this experimentation, all of this documentation, all this categorizing and cataloging uh, reveals something that often mystics already know. But they articulate it in a language that most scientists don't appreciate or don't enjoy or have no use for or find irrelevant, maybe. But for me, it's all the same thing and it has the same effect on me. I don't, you know, for me, science doesn't darken the world into uh, mundane shades of gray or black and white it actually helps me to get a grasp on the things that I can sense but um, you know intellectually I had a hard time uh, acknowledging because I you know I, I I guess I leaned more towards the logical and the scientific or maybe I just leaned towards doubting and being cynical and uh, <laughs> you know those being an intellectual doesn't have to mean that you're cynical and it doesn't have to mean that you 
hate on everything and you shit on everything. I mean, as you, as the arbitrary nature of reality reveals itself, it it becomes more and more apparent to me that you might as well be positive because it's equally irrelevant as negativity. <laughs> you know, but it feels better. So you know, if you if if it none of it really matters, and uh, all that, what is matter? Never mind. What is mind? Never matter. Or the other way around. It you really your attitude creates your reality. So um, it's not inherently more superior to be negative and cynical. In fact, it's liberating and freeing of the mind when you sort of imagine the possibilities. You have a hopeful and a positive kind of attitude and. So, you know, these things go very hand in hand to me, and I'm always disappointed when I hear uh, scientific people be so close-minded about that which they cannot experiment with, that which they cannot categorize, catalog, and, and uh, prove, or not disprove. And, uh, I, don't, and I guess it's because um, they feel put on the spot a lot, because the people who Spiritual people who have decided that their spiritual books need to be factual are often feel undermined by the things that scientists are out there proving. But that then you know you don't have to take it like that. You don't have to take their spiritual books as attempting to be scientific. If you don't read them that way, you read them as you know mystical revelations of things that are true but not true in that way. Then you're off the hook. Everybody's off the hook. So. It'd be cool if the shit would stop colliding so much in our culture and they just get to coexist as, uh, you know, to me, opposite sides of the same coin. So let's get on into that combo with Chip. So what were you we just talking about? Oh, that's, the, that's the uh, $64,000 <laughs> stoner pyramid question. This is a nice mic. What were we just talking about? Let the about? mind wonder. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think it... Uh, well, for, for going back, you were talking about the Bodhisattva... Um, thing uh mm -hmm. you were teaching your class about that yeah and i was talking about that tonight so my um glancing understanding of that is an enlightened being who mm -hmm. rather than go on to nirvana or lead mm -hmm. the wheel of samsara yeah sticks around and teaches is yeah that, is sticks that right? around and vows to always be reborn in places where there is suffering and discontent everywhere Everywhere, yeah. <laughs> All of the kama datus, the the uh, desire realms. Uh huh. Yeah, that's where the bodhisattva ends up landing. Um, Robert Thurman, uh, I I haven't watched a lot of his stuff because he's kind of hard to. He's not the best speaker. I think he's a he's really he's a little awkward. Yeah. Yeah. And with and the glass eye kind of probably. <laughs> Helps yeah. with that. He was just here at University of Richmond. Oh, was he really? Damn. Tuesday night. I wish yeah. I had known about that. He was doing a thing on anger and conflict from a Buddhist perspective, which is very relevant to our situation right now in the world. Hell yeah. Did he have yeah. the, someone else with him? Because there was a pair. He and a woman were on on being talking about that, too, and the idea of compassion in the right. face of that. And There is a professor at University of Richmond. Uh, her name escapes me. But her whole thing is like uh, Tantra and the feminine, and um, but Himalayan Vajrayana Tantra. So, okay, so that's um, what we were talking about. Miranda Shaw. That's Miranda Shaw. Yeah, I think yeah. that's. So she's a professor at U of R. Professor at U of R. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I heard them both on that show. I sent you the link to the On Being thing, and like everybody's yeah. been on that. You gotta, you gotta that's, get that's dig in. That's very cool. Yeah, I, I gotta dig in for sure. 
Maybe assign it as yeah. extracurricular. Because it's not all... I mean... Well, I, I will promote it in my classes. I'll say, if you're interested in these ideas that I've been talking about, I'll put it up on the board. And it's it's cool because they really do a good job of making it practical and yeah. relevant. You know? It, yeah. Because a lot of this stuff is hard for people to relate to who haven't taken active <laughs> interest in it. But it... Yeah. And these, there's a lot of people around now who've who've made it something that you can actually apply and and relate to every day. Exactly. What do you call it? Uh, secular, secular life. But it yeah, is. it's debated whether that term holds worldly life. I mean, yeah. What, what does that What does that mean? Right. I mean, you know. Is is how do you decide what's not the world and what is the world and that sort of well, thing? So, I think that yeah, the word secular initially was a word that people wanted to use to get away from uh, the Spiritual, church. right. The church. Like when the Enlightenment happened, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, there was this breakaway from the right. church and a more kind of scientific uh, view of things emerged. And breaking away from the church as arbiters of everything yeah. that The arbiters of truth and doing. in the yeah. Middle Ages and, yeah, medieval times, so... Um, but uh, as Wilbur says, they threw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Because he took a wholly scientific, materialist, reductive view of the world, and they threw out all the great stuff. I think that, yeah. although if you were to point blank ask a lot of scientists, they would say that they don't hold any stock in anything Gnostic like that, you know, mm-hmm. anything that's just mystical or mm-hmm. whatever. But they talk like they totally are. Yeah. You know, like that whatever the hell yeah. it is, oh. like. You know, Bill Nye or Carl Sagan or uh, um, what's his name, Neil deGrasse Tyson. There's so many of those guys when Uh they're talking, they really get into it. They sound like prophets, you know. They sound like people who've seen something that you haven't seen, Mm -hmm. you know. And Mm -hmm. I I love the way that uh, Contact, the movie, handles that. I never read the book, but, Mm -hmm. you know, Ellie, whatever her name was, she's a total, like, if you can't measure it, experiment with it, observe it, it doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Right, right. And that's a view that came from um, a, a, a philosophical school called Logical Positive, Positivism. August Comte basically said that, you know, if it can't be empirically measured, it's not real. And and science is the only correct view uh, or way of viewing the world right. that gives us truth. Right. And that view was was run with and I call it scientism. It's a philosophical yeah. viewpoint. Yeah. Uh that basically says all knowledge, all truth can be reduced to uh, what can be obtained through the scientific method. And I think it's pretty bogus and I think it's a kind of a shallow way to live. Yeah. To I mean the, the all of the things enhance each other yeah. like when i when i think of things and like what you just said about the bodhisattva before we turn on the mics the yeah. wave the standing wave mm-hmm. you know i mean that's a you so you can have a gnostic mystical kind of understanding of that or yeah. overstanding of that it, you can just experience that and have yeah. a, a, a moment with yeah. it but you can also understand it as in the way that science talks about field you know mm-hmm. that that most of what is going on is tendencies. There aren't even down at the quantum level actual things. Mm-hmm. There aren't tendencies, right? Yes. They're just tendencies in field, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Standing waves. Yeah. You know, yeah, and like that's right. 
you know there and so that makes this mystical shit actually pretty easy to talk about yeah if you use that language that's right you know and it requires the same kind of imagination i think so (laughs) and uh it's interesting you mentioned imagination i saw dr james gates speak last week who's a professor of physics quantum theory at the university of maryland and he went on a whole tangent about the uh, the power and the usefulness of imagination in constructing scientific theory. Mm-hmm. And actually, all of scientific theory, um, from now we now know, is has been based on 6% of the observable phenomena in the universe. They only studied 6% of what they theoretically think is out there. Right. Because most of it's dark energy, dark cannot, matter. And obviously, that shit is real, but cannot be measured or observed. Can't be measured, yeah. But it is inferred from math. That's right. Right. Yeah. Which I, I, I wish that I had known math could be like that when they were teaching it to me. And, yeah. Because uh, I just saw... I always them. did very poorly in math. So did so I. I. I took up the humanities and history. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can bullshit those things. That's right. Well, not- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's why I liked English so much. There is no right or wrong answer necessarily in an essay yeah. if you make your point well. Mm-hmm. But... You know, I, I, you fuck I, up a negative integer in an algebra equation, and it's wrong. Yeah, and and a lot of that right brain, uh, is it, no left brain thinking, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of um, form of thinking that is needed in math and science. Serial thinking. To me, it, just, it tends to be a bit like it, it, it's it's reifying. You're talking about concepts um, that are concrete. It doesn't require much imagination. Right. There's no playfulness involved. Right. And for me, being into music and mm-hmm. literature, uh, it's all about play. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool because, you know, um, I think there's an Alan Watts thing where he's talking about play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's saying, he's talking about the idea that Vishnu is at play. Is it Vishnu? That he's, you know, that he's everything. Mm-hmm. And he's at play in all mm-hmm. of this stuff. And it is not just play in the sense of... Um, frivolity, but mm-hmm. as an actor is playing mm-hmm. something right. or an instrument is being played, yeah, you know. And play has always been a big part of uh, Indian culture, all starting with the Natya Shastra, which was the first kind of treatise on uh, Indian views of drama and play and poetry. So um, there's a long tradition of um, uh, drama and playfulness, mm-hmm. and it, and it always has a kind of spiritual tinge to it mm-hmm. like krishna is playing with or playing hide and go seek you mm-hmm. know with his consort mm-hmm. and um and then there's this concept of leela if you you know the sanskrit word just means like the Dance. cosmic play mm-hmm. like well i know that, i know someone named rasa leela and oh cool and that uh, rasa means taste yeah does it taste and yeah. i i was under the impression i just remember this story secondhand that she was named after it's an event having to do with some deity dancing with maidens on yeah. a particular night of the year, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. So I got three things that I'm I'm wanting to talk to. First of all, you brought up Ken Wilber and you I don't think I've ever read any of his stuff, but you mm-hmm. mentioned him and you tried to turn me on to him about ten years ago when yeah. I first met you. And what's has up it with, been that long? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was Time. more. I think it might be. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was about 2004, yeah. 2005. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who, who the hell is Ken Wilber? So Ken Wilber um, is a well, he's a lot of things. He kind of laid the foundation for what we now call transpersonal psychology, uh, which is a form of psychology typically called the fourth force. 
Mm-hmm. So you have behavioralism and uh, uh, humanism and transpersonal psychology looks at uh, spiritual experiences and spiritual states of consciousness and attempts to map them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's transpersonal theory. And Wilbur also uh, uh, he's coined this, this term integral theory. Uh, it started with Sri Aurobindo in India, but Wilbur's kind of the Western uh, kind of um, proponent of what's called integral theory, which attempts to take uh, disparate disciplines, so psychology, sociology, religion, uh, linguistics, and and show how they're interrelated mm-hmm. uh, because um, most of these forms of knowledge kind of exist in their own bubbles, right. especially in the academy. Mm-hmm. So Wilbur tr- tries to integrate them mm-hmm. and show how they relate to uh, stages of consciousness, states of consciousness. Um, and uh, he's, he's a brilliant guy and he's very steeped in not only Western philosophical history, but also Eastern traditions and mm-hmm. contemplative traditions. So he's written probably 20 books. I have to check him yeah, out. It, yeah. it seems like when you take that stuff back, Christian stuff back yeah. far enough, it yeah. starts resembling um, Eastern thought a lot more. It's about you know Christian mystics yeah. and, and the way that and I was just I got the Gnostic yeah. Bible right here and I yeah. just remembered this. I forgot yeah. I had it and I've been wanting to read it again. Yeah. The, the talk that the way that. That Jesus is talking in this is a lot mm-hmm. more koan-ish, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. where it's not miracles, it's lessons, right. you know. Right. I think um, a lot of these kind of, kind of contemplative practices, um, they got shelved by the church mm-hmm. because the church didn't want people to have immediate access right. to a relationship with the divine. Right. They wanted to be the intermediary. Right. right? You got to so go they, through us. Yeah. So they shelved this stuff and, selling and it's being of, rediscovered now. What is it? Uh, selling of... Um, God, I forget what's the guy, the partner and and the summoner and all those guys in the Canterbury Tales are people that sold reliquaries and bones and mm-hmm. and pardons and all of that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. You could buy you could buy your way out of a. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So power always gets involved. Uh, I mean, we can look at the uh, the Brahmin priestly class in early Hinduism and how they were kind of the um, the technicians of ritual and kind of had an uh, kind of a grasp on uh, of disseminating the knowledge to to the people and and using it for control purposes mm-hmm. and it's one could argue that the Buddha uh, Siddhartha Gautama was reacting against that was saying you Brahmins you know you're you're a po- bunch of power hungry mongers and mm-hmm. uh, you don't need the Vedas. You don't need revealed texts to point the way. All you need is yourself, and right. you need your own experiences. So. Yeah, and I guess that, that those texts are a way of helping you contemplate. They're not supposed to be the thing. You know, fingers the, pointing towards. The yes. Moon. Yeah. I was. Right. You just took the words right out of my mouth, literally. Yeah. And uh, and I also say these are spiritual maps. When you have the map, or once you get to the destination, you can discard the map. Yeah. And. Um, one of my students had a question about that. He says, well, sometimes you might need the map to pull it out again or something. I said, well, okay, you can put it in your back pocket. Yeah. And that's what, <laughs> right. And that's what the practice is yeah. too. You know, it's yeah. like whatever your practice is yeah. to, and so, you know, this is one of them. And yeah. this is why, like for me, like sitting and talking to people and, yeah. and taking, listening mm-hmm. and all of that and take, get, getting some new shit in my head besides what I come up with. Yeah. And it's always good to, uh, relate to others for, 
our, as a as a spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. Even. Yeah. So the reason yeah. I brought up Robert Thurman earlier is that he was talking in the beginning of this thing I tried to watch. He was talking about how there was some something like there are only so many. It's like a miracle that any enlightened being exists, uh, that any Buddha would occur in all of the thousands and millions of possible worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I guess we've gotten one is the idea, but, but somehow this has been expanded for me into the idea that it is possibly we all have the uh, Buddha nature. That's right. So we yeah. are all buds of consciousness from yeah. this field of, mm-hmm. of matter and energy and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Somehow this miracle has happened, mm-hmm. you know, f- to you and to me that out of all of this, you know, for lack of a better word, inanimate stuff comes mm-hmm. awareness and consciousness. That's right. And it is in this all like the, the beginning of the real enlightenment is, is to say that's pretty mir- miraculous that that is happening, that that's I'm right. just existing right yeah. now yeah and the buddha can be seen as a representation of our inherent potential and we've got all day mm-hmm. i mean if you look at the buddhist view of time right mm-hmm. so you know where where does it end so right we're we're in the recycling plant here yeah we've got all day and we can begin now just working with our own emotions and uh trying to be a benefit to others that's I think yeah. that that's an extremely important practice as well, yeah. not to be taken, and and it's a thing that really gets lost in Western that people go through the motions of doing that, throw some shit in a collection plate yeah. and call it a day, uh-huh. and then go back into their selfish lives. That's right. As soon as they walk out the door. Yeah. But you really get so much more enlightenment, relief, happiness, and pleasure when you think of other people. It's totally the most selfish thing you can do is to think of yeah. other people. Yeah. And a great uh, <laughs> there's a great music video uh, that was. Um, it's kind of spoken word-ish, but it, 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 there's a little bit of a melody, and it's by Chogun Trumpa's son named Mipom, and it's called What About Me? And it starts out, what about me? We have these, that's the mantra of our culture. Mm-hmm. We wake up and we think, what about me, right? Yeah. Uh, will this object make me happy, this cup of coffee, this shower, whatever? And he's talking about all these these things we do throughout our day, and and that we have the potential to flip that and say, start with what about you first? Yeah. And and tending towards the needs of others, and th- that being the gateway into kind of an enlightened mode of awareness. I had a really like shitty fight with a ex girlfriend today, mm-hmm. and I got dragged into. I allowed myself to begin to be vindictive and and like assholeish and like name yeah. you know slinging. Uh-huh barbs and stuff and and i called up after you know the, the conversation ended and i called up my spiritual advisor yeah. and i told him how i'd been behaving and he said just go back to her and tell her you were wrong and sure. offer to be helpful and she didn't accept the helpfulness yeah. uh-huh. and she didn't but i felt so much fucking better yeah you know i got way more out of that yeah. than cuss you know call you know fighting mm-hmm. with her sure you know and, yeah. and like like that's the huge lesson is you don't do this shit transactionally. Mm-hmm. It's not that's codependency, right? You don't mm-hmm. you don't do what you do because you're expecting a payoff from the other person. That's right. You know, and yet that's a very hard thing in our Western culture for us to think yeah. of just because it's a it's an it's a major insult on our egos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we need to get out of that idea that our, we individually are important and identify in a larger to the, yeah. the greater thing. And we got a long way to go. I read an article recently. Uh, there was a study done on narcissism, 
narcissism in, on college campuses across America. And apparently it's like run rampant. Yeah. Yeah. It, we it, have it, this culture of narcissism and arrogance. Mm-hmm. And it's fueled by our cons- consumer materialistic culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it, so it, totally it's, supported and fueled by it and yeah. encouraged. And, oh, yeah. So we're lucky we, we, we got an edge on that, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. But it, it occurred to me, like, in thinking about all of that, like, um, the Lotus Sutra, right? It's a story mm-hmm. that the Buddha is sitting there in front of a bunch of people, and he just holds up a lotus, and one guy gets it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, I th- and I think I get it. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think you're supposed to articulate it if you get it, but I think he's basically saying that's what yeah. we are. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like that's this consciousness, this existence. We have we have blossomed out of the the you know the netherworld, the ether, the whatever. Muck. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we, yeah. yeah. The lotus, you know, coming out of the muck and the mud. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful symbol symbol for our potential. So. And when you know, I'm just like I was a petty person that identified with like bullshit like do you like my band or not uh-huh. like uh-huh. you know who am i in this pop culture scene or like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know fighting for that being a player and that kind of stuff i was i was involved i participated <laughs> in that whole game <laughs> but when you know when i when i start to think like that and then just totally center mm-hmm. myself in something that yeah. you know like cosmically yeah. that i get so much relief from even thinking like that like mm-hmm. Yes, these little things just come and go. This little social crap comes and yeah. goes, whether or not yeah. so-and-so likes you or not, or uh-huh. you think you're being reflected. But like, I think what's so mirthful about the Dalai Lama is that he's like he's never centering himself in that kind of thing. He's mm-hmm. centering himself in the big, big, big picture, That's right. of which we are all a part. Yeah. You know? And he's considered to be the, uh, the reincarnation of Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. Who represents the ongoing energetic presence of uh, mindful attunement towards suffering and the causes of suffering? Yeah, yeah. And that, and it is when I encounter somebody that sucks, Mm -hmm. and I consider the causes and the possibilities of why they're and their suffering, and what is that's a manifestation of all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, I get so much relief from whatever the hell just happened yeah. there. It's practical shit. Practical know. shit. Uh, it's hard, but it's not obvious for a lot of people. And um, arguably, the, a lot of the conflict that's going on in the world right now, if not all the conflict, is rooted in the inability to be with suffering. Yeah. And the projection of our own kind of uh, egoic turmoil. That something's wrong yeah. if we're not feeling great. In that moment, if they we're not yeah. feeling the way we want to. Well, we we are a, a joy challenged culture, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a great book called History of a Western Guilt Culture, 13th to 18th Century. Uh, Jean Dulemieux, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. He's a French historian, and he talks about kind of the philosophical roots of 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 this kind of guilt ridden uh, inability to be with painful situations, painful emotions, Mm -hmm. and be patient with them, have compassion for them. Uh, This is something that our culture is is far Do you think it's any more complicated than an amoeba, like, shying away from a hot wire stuck in its Petri dish, you know, that we just are, that we're just designed? I mean, we are, the the thing is we have a problem of of differentiating actual mortal 
danger and pain mm-hmm. from the kind that we perceive based on e- our ego being threatened. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So like I can be as afraid of losing a job as I am of losing my arm, mm-hmm. you know, or yeah. my life mm-hmm. even. And, you know, we have, so it's, it's too much abstraction of something that's there for a practical reason. Yeah. You know, healthy self-interest fear, like you better not uh, step off that cliff or get too close to that bear, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. Yeah. But, that's healthy fear. Yeah. Yeah. But we can apply that to walking into a room full of people. You sure. Know? And, and, and our ego feels the same uh, threat, you know, peril mm-hmm. in that. And, mm-hmm. and we will struggle as hard. To yeah. preserve whatever we have to do. Yep. Just realize that narcissism comes from. It's like a, it's a type of bubble, a cocoon. Yeah, it sure, surely is a bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and I think it's just I think a lot of this stuff is related to um, a lot of the kind of turmoil and pain that people experience is related to our habitual patterns of labeling mm-hmm. and conceptual labeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. We have we have a thought and then we immediately label that thought, mm-hmm. you know, good or bad. The naming and, and then, the valuing. And, and yeah, and we're we're always we're we have this kind kind of hope and fear sort of dichotomy. Mm-hmm. We're always trying to uh, reach, you know, happy ho- or hopeful states, shying away from negative or sorrow or pain or anything like that. And how can we? let all of these emotions arise and just notice them and, and bring ourselves back. Mm-hmm. Right. That it's all enlightened energy. Yeah. Right? That, that our process of conceptualizing, uh, our thoughts really is, um, is the stumbling block. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and it's not, it's counterintuitive to recognize you have a choice there yeah. that you can decide. I mean, there's, it's one thing to have that initial response to something, but then to yeah. inf- feed it and infuse it with a whole lot more, you know, really give it your attention and build it up, Yeah. you know? And yeah, yeah that is one of those contemplative practice things mm-hmm. that you can just sit there and watch it go by like yeah. leaves on a stream or mm-hmm. whatever. And I mean, all of that stuff is, it's, again, we're back to very practical and practice, practical, practice. just try it, you know? That's right. Try like mm-hmm. just, let, you know, taking a deep breath when you've, you're feeling like, you know, intensely, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, nervous or, or stressed out about something. Deep breath, any object. Breath is usually used uh, in the West because it's always with us. We don't always have a mandala to look at right? or a, a bodhisattva. Uh, but the also, I recommend the practice of uh, preparing and drinking tea. Mm. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says, sipping tea, I stop the war. Yeah. So we're talking about the internal war. Yeah. So we can use that uh process as a as a mindful way to bring ourselves back mm-hmm. um i got damn so many things going I, I was reading this this is kind of a new concept introduced to me i've been reading a pima Chodron book she's great called uh, when things fall apart mm-hmm. and i'm reading it very slowly and I, I and most of what she's saying is stuff i'd already you know sort of been introduced to and then but she this chapter i'm reading now is like let the destruction happen yeah. like like get into it get, get into cancer it. it's very appreciate it you know yeah, yeah. yeah and and yeah. 
she, because these things that mess us the fuck up are mm-hmm. really what it's all about, mm-hmm. you know? That's right. Like, existing in this perfected state is really, like, kind of flatlined. Right. It's, it's numbed out, you know? That's right, yeah. And I really, and I'm like, gosh, I've been, most of what I've been doing is, is to achieve some state of equanimity, at least, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I don't know if it's perfection or whatever, but I'm working towards, like, not being ruffled. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not getting very far. But, like, that's, like, been my goal. And she's, like, saying, get ruffled. Get rough, you know? yeah. And I think she <laughs> says something like, we were talking about Bodhi Chitta earlier. She calls it like embracing the genuine heart of sadness, mm. which I totally love. Yeah. That it's um, it's about letting your heart not be broken, but be broken open. Yeah. Towards yourself and others. Yeah. So. And that's a, I mean, that's probably the most profound thing that happened to me in the last five years. I really got like, like yeah. totally heartbroken. Like a relationship yeah. ended. But for the first time in my life, I didn't run to the uh, escape uh-huh. stuff. I That's just right. like went into it, you yeah. know, and you dove in. Yeah. That's all... where the spiritual path starts. Yeah. A willingness to just kind of let yourself fall down. Mm-hmm. Right. And just just uh, just let that happen. Let that experience come about. And I feel very affectionate and rom- and romantic about that time period, which was at the time ex- very painful and lonely. Mm-hmm. But it made me so much more in touch with the other people around me, the other dudes around me. Yeah. I, like somebody start talking about something and I wasn't like, wah, wah, wah. I could hear mm-hmm. them. I was like, I know what you're feeling. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I really understand that. Yeah. And so much of my life dedica- had been dedicated up to that point of not identifying mm-hmm. with you. Like mm-hmm. the narcissism thing. Right. Fueled by, yeah. you know. It, that, that, those experiences really deepen our kind of energetic connection with others. Yeah. Which is powerful it's and it fucking exists whether you want to acknowledge it or not you know we we initially came from uh, the same cell at one point right i mean all the goddamn biological life on this planet Mm -hmm. yeah started somewhere you know that's right like we we can barely even contemplate taking it back to you know two humans you know whenever Mm -hmm. you decided to start calling him humans and not Mm -hmm. neander well they are not the same tree as us neanderthal but when you stop yeah. to call him Homo habilis or Homo erectus or whatever, mm-hmm. it's this continuum. That's right. You know, mm-hmm. and and like it's been exponentially multiplying, but it all started at some point, and we're, therefore we're all connected. We're all carrying some piece of the same common stuff, yeah. and it's all drawn. So what is the the idea that your body is made up of that which you consume? You know, and that you, you like I've heard it called like the food body or something like that, and um, I don't know this concept. No, is, I, I is thought it, it was Indian, like prana or something like that. But maybe that's not prana, it. That's breath. Prana just is breath, and uh, pranayama is like yogic practices connected with breath. So this is something else that I heard Joseph Campbell talking about. But it made it like you don't think about it very often that it, you do not exist independently of this stuff you've been eating and drinking. Like you're made out of that mm-hmm. stuff. Like, oh, absolutely. And uh, Terence McKenna. You know McKenna? Oh, yeah. Ethnobotanist uh, has very uh, pointed things to say about this and how the chemicals and the things that we uh, take in have profoundly altered uh, our consciousness mm-hmm. throughout the ages. Our relationship with plants is Our relationship with plants and, and language. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, well, he, you know, he, I guess he basically, food of the gods is the one that... Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know if I was thinking this before I read it, but that the idea that... Well, first of all, the story of Adam and Eve is a uh, it's a myth, but it's describing a point in which something was ingested, maybe perhaps not 
you know, it didn't happen the moment, you know, one time mm -hmm. somebody ingested something, but the practice of developing a symbiotic relationship with some kind of a hallucinogenic plant, whether yep. it's mushrooms or whatever, first the women were doing it because they were the hunters and gatherers. Mm -hmm. So they were like picking things up and eating them. And they're like, whoa. Oh, sure. And they got their minds blown. They started sharing it with each other. Yeah. And then they, and Adam was fine. He's out there hunting. Uh -huh. You know, the man is out there hunting. And all of the Eves have started to develop this sort of, you know, Gnostic, intuitive, like, you know, state of thinking that has, you know, been enhanced by plants. That's right. And then they turn the dudes on to it. Uh -huh. And it kind of fucks things up for them because <laughs> initially they suddenly have to be so much more aware uh -huh. of what they're doing. And so they kind of curse the woman for having introduced them to that. <laughs> and, and there's one anthropologist, I, I forget his name, but he said that his theory is that before we started talking to one another, uh, that we first started singing with each other, that, that mm -hmm. singing and collective, uh, so we were making noises mm -hmm. and then harmony and all that mm -hmm. stuff was going on way before we were using uh, verbal cues mm -hmm. and uh, you know sophisticated language like we are now. I forget it's who kind it, of a cool idea. Yeah, I like that. And um, and, and where does language? When do we start calling it language and stop calling it music and right, all of right. that? You know. Yeah. That's just, that's one of those divisions I guess you're talking about mm -hmm. like Ken Wilber tries to break down and, mm -hmm. and and all of these like even listening to that thing that I shared I sent to you where the Dalai Lama the uh, Jonathan Sachs a bunch of other people like a rabbi a, you uh -huh. know um, a Buddhist a, a Christian and a Jew or I mean we already said Jew anyway uh -huh. they're all talking about mind and body uh -huh. and it's the fucking same thing. Like, yeah. I think it's time to stop thinking of your, uh -huh. your, you're like a mad scientist driving around this machine that's mm -hmm. like a, a flesh robot. It's yeah. all one thing. Well, yeah. I agree with you on that. Uh, but it's, from Plato onward, uh, there seems to be this uh, kind of animosity towards the body, this hatred mm -hmm. of the body, because he says the body is the prison of the soul. So how does the fucking brain not be counted as the body? You know, it is the body. It it's the running body. the body. That's right. You know? Yeah. So consciousness exists in the, we assume it exists in the brain, but. Uh, consciousness studies, uh, there's many different views. Uh, there's, there's a reductionist view or emergentism that says it can be related to synaptic firings. Uh, but then there's like the non-local view. Uh, that which spiritual traditions talk about that actually consciousness is the fabric of all that is. Yeah, it's the the ground of the Being. entire phenomenal world. So it's kind of like each each of our uh, yeah. the consciousnesses that we think are particular to us or unique to us is actually something f flowing into us through yeah. the the whole thing. Right. And it's like Kundalini kind of thinking too. It seems to me like you're drawing your being out of the material and you're you know yeah. And and then, I I kind of was thinking that the crown chakra is actually the point in which you pass it through you and you put it back mm -hmm. out there. You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. it's not localized in your forehead or your right. throat or whatever. It's my thinking on consciousness is I use the uh, t the television analogy. Have mm -hmm. you heard this? I don't know. So the picture of the world that we're getting is kind of like the screen on the television. Right. Um. So if we turn the television off, there's no picture, but right. there's still the signal. Yeah. There's still that signal. Yeah. So it's still being sent to the TV. It, so if the TV right? is the brain, mm -hmm. right? The, the consciousness needs the brain in order to uh, give us the experience of being in the world at all. Mm -hmm. um, 
But that doesn't mean that the brain creates consciousness. Right. It means that consciousness is more fundamental. It's the it's the uh, the primary signal, and that when we turn the TV off, there's still that signal. And that's the bu- that's the bud. That's too. the bud. Yeah. yeah, we're all and we we all are an expression that's, of that's the, the spirit, the prana, the Christ, the Buddha, whatever. Like it. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. Um. God, that gets me thinking about so much other stuff. But uh, music. We have. How yeah. long have you? When did you start playing music? I started playing. The no, I started playing the drums first when I was like 13, and then I picked up guitar at 14, and uh, I've been playing ever since. I started playing live shows around 1997. And was was your um, playing of music concurrent with your interest in the kinds of things we're talking about now? As you like, did it did it connect to that? Did it relate to that, or was it just something you sort of did? There's some relationship. Um, with my desire to express and create music and my interest in spirituality, I haven't quite figured out what that is yet. Mm-hmm. I'm still working on it. <laughs> Where, did your interest in spirituality occur at the same time, or was it there before playing music? Um, I think, but I'm not sure. Uh, if my kind of thinking about spirituality... Uh, began after the experience of of watching someone die when I was very young. Uh, I had the the experience uh, of, of uh, watching a gr- my grandmother uh, pass away in my house, and m- maybe that was like my bar mitzvah or something. Mm-hmm. Like it was my initiation or something mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the big picture and the deeper questions that we all seem to care about. So mm-hmm. that was kind of my... Uh, initiation and what you had did did you ever choose to do with that something like i mean it's kind of like um siddhartha he sees suffering and he just breaks you know it yeah. takes off you oh, know yeah. and he's just like this completely shatters like, everything that was like my uh leaving the the uh the palace mm-hmm. yeah but the palace was perception not a, a physical place right right yeah so you stayed home and you stayed integrated and stayed involved and were yeah. a good kid yeah all of that uh Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to have fun, you know. Did but your my dad is a criminal lawyer, so uh, I knew all the laws and uh-huh. uh, I was well aware of how much trouble I could get into. So <laughs> I, I just bend it bended the laws a little That's bit. That's really nice. You were thinking of him. Yeah. yeah. Instead of the consequences for yourself, but for your father. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And his career. That's very that's very thoughtful. Well, I do what I can. Did you grow up in Richmond? I grew up in Richmond, um, born and raised um, let's see, family history. Should I go into that? Why not? Uh, yeah. So um, I've traced my family all the way back to north n- north of England, Leicestershire County. Uh, 1676, we came over into Amelia County, Virginia. Holy shit. Um, after uh, the King of England gave one of my distant ancestors a plot of land in Amelia. And we've been here ever since. Goddamn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that is like the paternal line or the maternal line or both? That is my paternal line. Yes, it's my paternal line. How did, did you re- research this sort of academically or did you do it on uh, Ancestry.com? Um, my folks researched it oh, actually yeah. and they showed some of that history to me. And, uh, and I have some family that are from eastern Tennessee and um, 
and now we're all scattered. <laughs> I have family now out in California, Colorado, so um, you know the, the times are different. But I moved to California in, in 2008 and lived in San Francisco. Is that when you were five at years? Esalen. Uh, that was before I moved to California. I lived at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur um, for six weeks in 2007. And um, went there to just kind of reflect and gather myself to see if I could get a glimpse into what it is that I'm supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really you know, pursuing, pursuing music, and um, that was my passion. And you know, I had a run at it. Uh, couldn't make any money. <laughs> you were in River City High, right? Yep. And you guys played, got pretty close. There. I played guitar with with those guys for two years, and I was in a band called Adaro before that. Um, and I had a great time with River City uh, for those two years. Were you on board during the uh, making the band and all uh, of that? I came on board right after that, right after that, and then um, that was right after they won that Do Circuit breakout, and then I. Um, and then I jumped on board, and we did a fair amount of touring for two years, and I played on the last record. And what, that, when did that River City High stop being a uh, thing? We stopped playing in, let's see, like April or May of 2007. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I, I never, that was, that pop punk thing was never my thing, but I always liked all of you guys. Very much, but I, so yeah. I, and the, I, I probably appreciate it more now. Well, the last record and the direction we were going was way more like 70s rock. Yeah. So it still had a little bit of the pop edge, but it was more um, influenced by like CCR and like oh yeah and like a lot of great Thin Lizzy and stuff like that. I was so. thinking that it seemed like you you guys were going more in the direction. I mean, it probably wouldn't find this flattering, but the Super Suckers, you know, and their mm-hmm. interest in like you know yeah. rock and roll, but also pop punk and right. Yeah, I think it was because Mark was wearing the same hat as Eddie Spaghetti all the time. Was fucking <laughs> That's right. Him. He doesn't wear the cowboy hat anymore. He doesn't. No, he's just rocking the dome. He's no. he's rocking. Um, I don't know. It's it, it kind of looks French. This hat that he wears now. He's he lives in Los Angeles and uh, he's uh, he's working in the movies right now. So I haven't seen that dude in forever. I'd love. I hope he comes to town sometime. I'd like to catch him. He worked this. on the uh, the brand new Christopher Nolan film that's about to come out. Oh wow! And what was, is that called? He was in Iceland for a while during the shooting. Um, I don't know the name of it. It looks yeah, it does look pretty cool. Amazing, for it. Yeah. I saw an ad for it. It had this very strange. Uh, it reminded me of something else. It, oh fuck! I don't want to talk about that right now. So <laughs> there's a, something that I I brain farted on when we were talking about it before that when we start naming things and how that started defining everything and. Mm. That's another biblical, you know, in the beginning, you know, it was nothing. And then yeah. there was the or word. Or was the word. Right. And the word became flesh. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So but first, so the word so, came before. Okay. So in the beginning was the so, word. So not nothing. Okay. Yeah. Right. The was, word. And then yeah. the word. And the word right. has always been. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, it's this idea that I think it was Philip K. Dick talking about mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. like that that's where we start dividing and it's like you divide the land from the the sea uh, and uh-huh. you divide the air from the ground and all of that yeah because you start naming it all mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. when you start naming it you start seeing it as separate and you get lost yeah. in the in the names yeah yeah and the that's division, right. so that, the gnostics talk about how like we become lost in matter mm-hmm. or been trapped yeah um which is i i find that concept to be really interesting yeah and you know one of the ideas is that Shiva is supposed to free us from that 
trap, that that's the world of illusion, that we've been lost in matter, we've been lost mm-hmm. in thinking this by this byproduct mm-hmm. of the play and this right. byproduct of all of that, which yeah. is all of this stuff that has uh-huh. to exist sort of as set dressing, yeah. you know, to make any of it happen yeah. so yeah. that it can function, so that there's a context and all yeah. that kind of shit. We get c- convinced of that instead of the experience that it's yeah. of living that is... That's the, right. You know, the divine thing that's supposed to be happening. So at some point, that shit has to be destroyed. Destroyed. Shiva represents destruction. And right. uh, to kind of invoke the Buddhist take on that, uh, the great kind of uh, uh, his school was called the Middle Way, Madhyamaka. Yeah. Nagarjuna ma- gave a major dope slap to a lot of the early Buddhists who were talking about all these rules, Eightfold Path, and, and everything. And and when it came to like dharmas, like what actually exists, uh, he says we can't say that things exist. We can't say things don't exist. We can't say things both exist and don't exist. And we can't say things neither exist nor don't exist. <laughs> so he really kind of broke down mm-hmm. the the whole our whole conceptual trapping of is isn't uh, uh, either or sort of thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, so and, and the, really the, idea, the audacity it. that we're yeah. we can't say, yeah, like who the fuck are we, yeah, to decide that we're going to be the authority on this thing, yeah, and that's that is the problem that some scientists have, I think, is this mm-hmm. is this need, which is very ego based, to mm-hmm. you know, and they are in competition with each other, yeah, and then that arises from that, that desire and all yeah. of that for recognition and everything, mm-hmm. um, that this. You know this need to to know it, to name it, to mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. and and the real freedom is from you can f- still enjoy those things mm-hmm. without having to possess. That's right. Them, right. And I'm I'm writing my my dissertation. Hopefully, be finishing it this winter on uh, Indo-Tibetan Buddhist perspectives on William Blake's work that came out in 1789 and 1794 called "The Songs of Innocence and Experience," and William Blake had a problem with naming and conceptualizing as well. Mm-hmm. He talks about it as the fall from innocence into experience, mm-hmm. that these are two contrary states of the human soul is how he talks about it. And that the fall into experience is, an, is inevitable, mm-hmm. like the falling into samsara, which mm-hmm. is like could be looked at as the fall into conceptual trapping. Mm-hmm. And, what we need to do is harness the power of innocence, which is wisdom energy. Or beginner's mind, the idea yeah. that we we don't know, that we could yeah. be something of a blank slate. Or harness the power of our own Buddha nature and transcend beyond that. And he calls it organized or higher innocence. I, You know, I, I think if I'm interpreting this right, it's like a thing that... I try to do the while I'm using the tools of existing language and all of that. I every so often try to say, hey, you know, this is just uh, an illusion. Mm-hmm. This is a game. I mean, it's not just to feel light with it, just to feel playful about life mm-hmm. and all of this kind of stuff. That, yeah. You know. Um, and he uses innocence. He uses symbols to the lamb, the child, mm-hmm. certain things to represent the tiger's experience. Oh, that's the experience, right? Uh, but innocence is always synonymous with wisdom. Playfulness, unity, freedom, spontaneous delight, joy, all those things that we remember at a very young age before the kind of educational process uh, sets in. It's, you know, I I guess it's a different, I mean, 
like experience for me, I, I was always a talker and I was always really into words. Hence what we were talking about before about how easy it is to bullshit things. You can really sound like you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Intellectually, the mm-hmm. uh, that kind of knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, with a K, mm-hmm. and which is is very synthetic, mm-hmm. and um, but sounds like it has depth, but it really is a bunch of empty symbols and meaning mm-hmm. without experience, without yeah. the Gnostic part of it. Yeah. Like until you really have a, I think you know, a mystical experience with even like what you would consider to be non-spiritual knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't really know what you're talking about. That's right. The the confusion between knowledge and wisdom is a major problem. Yeah. And uh, there's a great Christian text. um, uh, It's the... It has to do with unknowing. Uh, The path path that leads to Christ is unknowing. Mm -hmm. Um, God, how am I missing the name of this? And these are such great... You know, you play with these words, the unknowing. Mm -hmm. First of all, like... I mean, this goes back to the tree of knowledge thing. I think the bad thing about it is this commitment to synthetic knowledge. That's mm-hmm. It's not that knowledge is bad. It's thinking that that kind of knowledge is the only kind of knowledge. That's right. You know, That's a major problem. That there there yeah. are so many other ways to know shit, and some of them you cannot articulate to other people. Right. You just have to have them. Yeah. You just I have mean, to cultures within, who have a profound sense of intuitive knowing, mm-hmm. native cultures, Navajo, Hopi, mm-hmm. all those indigenous... Uh, uh, spiritual uh, cultures recognize the importance of intuitive know- knowing, knowing through dreams, knowing through visions, mm-hmm. and it wasn't just uh, you know conceptualized knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, because there's a, there's a feeling that goes with this kind yeah. of of knowing, and I, I like the I don't know if I'm correct in doing this, but I like to separate it by GN, you know, Gnostic and you know, knowledge and mm-hmm. it's a personal experience of this thing that you are abstractly mm-hmm. talking about. And oh, that book that I was mentioning is called The Cloud of Unknowing. The Cloud of Unknowing. The Cloud of Unknowing. Yeah. And yeah, and so you say unknowing, and I think of just the idea of of stepping back from the idea that you have some kind of mastery by what you think you know. Mm-hmm. You know, to unknow something, mm-hmm. to like not mm-hmm. to have that knowledge of it, not to think that you you're all up in it, yeah. to take a step back from it, to yeah. to say that you know the human perceptive organs are limited in in their scope yeah. and penetration, mm-hmm. and this all of this stuff that we see, hear, feel, taste, it's a, it's just it's just at one magnification, it's at yeah. one. Um, and that this is a good example of this. Uh, R- Ralph Feynman, the physicist, he's sitting yeah. there talking about this kind of thing, and he sounds like someone giving a talk, a spiritual talk. Mm. He's like, we are like, in us looking out in the universe, we're like a bug on the side of a swimming pool right after somebody dove in it. Yeah, and <laughs> that's a great analogy. I like that. Cool. <laughs> and so yeah. we just see the evidence of something we're trying to figure it out and we can only see with these little holes in our head yeah like pointing in this direction if we want to see something else we have to yeah. turn our head and it's yeah it's such a limit so it's we use that and we appreciate that but don't be fooled mm-hmm. that it's complete or yeah, comprehensive exactly. <laughs> yeah and houston smith in his book called um why religion matters he says science can only deal with that which is inferior to it mm-hmm. it can't deal with transcendent yeah things that are beyond the scope of science so it looks at that which it can deal with and that's an important lesson i think Mm -hmm. for 
most people realize. I think the scientists and yeah. people and people who code, code themselves as more spiritual would both be happier if they realized that these are intersecting things that are going on here. That they're not one is not trying to trump the other. It should stop trying to trump the other, replace the other. Yeah. We're talking about two different things. Yeah. We're two different things, but those two different kind of uh, pursuits of knowledge. Ken Wilber wrote a book called The Marriage of Sense and Soul, and he talks about how religion and science should come into a healthy relationship together, mm-hmm. um, a form of dialogue. And maybe even yeah. maybe I shouldn't have said different thing. Maybe you should stop thinking that they are different things, but different ways. They're different yeah. modes. They're different practices. That's they're, right. Um, because I get when I am exploring. I'm watching a TED talk from Brian Cox, you know, or something mm-hmm. like that. I I get the same feeling as, as you know, listening to uh, that Sufi mystic mm-hmm. on there talking sure. about it. It's still this. Yeah. There is so much more than what meets the eye. Yeah. <laughs> I think approaching religion and science both with a sense of wonder. Yeah. Is uh is a good way to start. Beginners and mind. and Plato says all philosophy starts with wonder. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, embrace the mystery. Yeah. <laughs> so when you when you think about uh, your connection to time and family and all of this kind of stuff like this, like going back to England and how long you've been in Amelia and all that, what is that? I mean, that's that's a great feeling. I know it also. Like I can trace my family back to Massachusetts and back mm. to England and France and yeah. all this kind of stuff. And there's there's actually a, a breadcrumb trail. Yeah. But what does it mean to you? You know, to have. Um, I haven't thought about it deeply yet. Um, Don't just. There's there's something interesting to me though that my uh, my my father showed me a picture of the house that we had in Amelia. This is it was passed down. This is from uh, at least a hundred years ago, and it looks eerily sim- similar to the house that I grew up in. Wow. Same shutters, same style house. So the house that the family moved into in Amelia. In Amelia, it looks uh-huh. a lot like the house that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Uh, just stylistically, the shutters, the color of the house, the way the windows are are um, placed. It's it looks like almost the same house. Mm-hmm. And it, there's something very uh, eerie about it to me. Not eerie, but uh, kind of um, I don't know. This means something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I like connecting to that and being, and having my mind blown, too, like that you go, all right, you grandparents, that's four people, great parents, mm-hmm. grandparents, that's eight, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and it on and on. Mm-hmm. It goes exponentially. So you decide to follow one line. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. You know, that's, there's a shitload of lines that went into that. And yeah. then on back, like forget about England, you know, forget about like those uh, Europe, forget mm-hmm. about... Um, I don't know. A lot of people can't trace their family back that far. Uh, Like my wife, for for instance, her mom's side of the family, a lot of them were uh, were killed in the Holocaust. Oh wow! So a lot of that can't be can't be traced. So So it can't, you know, it can't be traced, but it can be obviously inferred, right? Like because here we are, Uh right, and we came from somewhere, and and yeah, so we can look back 500 years or 600 years, but Mm. like. You know, you, have you seen that Cave of Forgotten Dreams thing that uh, Werner Herzog did? I love him. 
Uh, I you, don't know this. If you haven't seen this fucking, I, I, yeah. I watched it all the way through one time, and now I put it on huh. sometimes when I want to fall asleep to the TV. It's a documentary about a cave in France uh, wow. that was sealed for thirty thousand years, but the art wow. in it is from like is older than that. I don't oh, know, I eighty thousand years. That's cool. And it's all cave painting, but, you know, just the earliest Neanderthal. I think it's supposed to be modern human. Okay. But it's still it is in France where and they did it intersecting. I was just watching a thing about that that we probably didn't wipe out the mm-hmm. um, Neanderthals as much as hump them into our genetic line i i really like listening to uh to herzog speak yeah i like he has this kind of lulling effect to his voice but it's also kind of scary yeah yeah he sounds like he could be that scary you know commandant (laughs) dude but he did a great uh documentary uh on um this research station in antarctica did you see that i haven't seen that that's very cool it's like something about the edge of the universe or edge of the world or uh, it's very cool. So the you know the thing to to contemplate like watching Cave of Forgotten Dreams. I mean these are like our ancestors. Yeah. You know that like you, we we feel very connected to Grandma and Grandpa, mm-hmm. but like these people are also like the people from which we came. I mean the the population gets smaller and smaller and smaller the farther you go back, and we are all related. Yep. And absolutely. Yep. I have to contemplate that every so often and say that I'm not, you know, Farley, which is my mother's line, or Payne, which is my dad's line. I'm, I'm not any of those things. I'm this, you know, um, I'm, it's sort of, you know, a human stretching back and, but not only that, the fucking, yeah. you know, start the yeah. carbon yeah. And, so and. You're related to all your ancestors, but you're also related to everyone populating the planet right now. The Tibetan tradition says. At some point, everyone has been your mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's Which is not a only way like to, to kind of orient oneself towards the other. Mm-hmm. And as uh, yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson in the beginning is something I saw. He says we're all connected to each other biologically, to the Earth chemically, and to the universe atomically. Mm-hmm. You know, there aren't there isn't any separation yeah. you in the universe. Right. That's Alan Watts's. Right. You know, um, epiphany or whatever at the end of that yeah. book. It's you're not lost alone, and you are the universe. Yeah. Like the universe, the universe is this whole. That's right. right. So stop, <coughs> stop the. You know, you gotta you gotta exist in the world of illusion. But every so often, take time out to contemplate the fact that it's. Sure. You know, you're ageless. Yeah. And infinite. Every yeah. every particle of your yeah. being, and it cannot be destroyed. Yeah. Says science. Yeah, Neither. and Ken Wilber says, I don't know if it's, I know he uses this phrase, I don't, it may come from an older Zen tradition, but he says, um, remember your face, your original face, before your mom, your mother and father were born, mm. which is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So that idea that you were talking about before of like, where is consciousness, I, I've, I've had the experience in doing yoga and you know, when I'm really doing it on a regular basis, uh-huh. that it's not, I don't feel that it is centered in my head, uh-huh. that I, it, I actually feel that it is all over, and like in all of these industrious little fucking cells that mm-hmm. are doing their job, you yeah. know, that there's actually this chorus of consciousness 
you know, making me up that all the way down to my goddamn toenails. Yeah. Because there's all every single cell is a little energy producing machine, and it actually has individual life forms inside of it. Oh yeah. You know that have over bajillions of years decided to get along and operate inside Mm -hmm. this thing, right? Yeah. So there's actually all of these voices in there, Mm -hmm. you know, and the you know this union of like getting, it's not being abstracted, but like spending an hour like just paying attention mm-hmm. to all of this yeah that i could you know hear all of that and i know it sounds crazy as shit mm-hmm. but it's like mm-hmm. it's this little it's like the the fucking cicadas in the trees yeah you know yeah i can hear oh it's every part of me is alive mm-hmm. every part of me has some kind of will functioning that's right you know absolutely yeah i mean if you take it all the way back too i think i think if you push it all the way back you always get to the uh the unconditioned mm-hmm. what, the, what the, all the religions talk about Right. The original mind, the unconditioned, that from which all conditioned things arose. Um, and that's a kind of an en- enigmatic idea, but. Um, but it, it goes hand in hand with the word. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because the word was the first condition. Yeah. You know? And I love, uh, there's a Catholic theologian I follow, Father Baron, who says what God means is the condition for the possibility of there being anything at all. I like. Uh, but any religious person, serious religious person, uses that word God. They don't mean a being. Right. They don't mean some being amongst other beings that you can. It's not like uh, you can find it as a as one thing amongst many in the world. It's not like that. Right. No. It's the condition for the possibility not, of there being anything. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 inertia of creativity of creation like yeah. that it happened that the bang that mm-hmm. that you know yeah. this formed and then this blew up and, and the big bang got... was an idea that was coined by a jesuit priest right who who was that <laughs> i forget his name it's not <laughs> Teilhard de no not no. jordan no. no but he was talking about evolution a long time ago yeah yeah and he was a scientist as well a museum anthropologist wasn't yeah. he yeah. yeah that um God damn. Oh yeah, well, Alan Watts. I I used to have these like four or five Alan Watts talks, and in one of them he's talking about images of God, mm-hmm. and he says there's this old joke that the ast okay, the astronaut goes up to space, mm-hmm. and when he comes down, everybody says, "Did you see God?" And he said, "Yes, she is black," and you know initially that's ha ha, yeah. different from what anybody would think, but then he right. breaks that down to what is the feminine. Right. The concave yeah. versus the con- convex, right. and and also like, and that black being the the ground, you know, uh-huh. the the context, right. you know, yeah. like that That's it's cool. it's the idea of like the potential for anything to be, mm-hmm. and where you know like the page before the words are on it, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and all of that, like yeah, and that potential gave rise to. What we were talking about earlier, the the dance, the masculine, the feminine, right. the light, the dark. Yeah, you know, that, the whole that, that whole binary opposition that, thing, right. man. Yeah, and it goes all the way down. The yin and the yang. Yeah. All right, that's a good cool. as good a place to wrap it up, all right? right? Thanks, Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming over. That was good fun. Good stuff. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, wait. I, I always say yeah. Yeah. Tell them about it. Hit them where it hurts. Um, I just found out. <clears throat> you guys, this. The opening music I use for this podcast is um, is from the Alice Coltrane record called uh, Journey in Sachinadanda. I think that's how you pronounce it. And um, I just 
recently was listening to a Mark Maron podcast with Rivers Cuomo, and he actually lived on the ashram that uh, Sri Swami Sachinadanda set up at one point. And I don't know where that one was, but did you know that the fucking the last one he did is in Buckingham County in Richmond, Virginia. I mean in Virginia. Yeah, Yogaville. That is uh, Sri Swami Sachinadanda's ashram or whatever i mean he's dead now but that's what he set that place up it's kind of weird after i found that out i asked i asked chip if he wanted to go up there sometime he said they have great vegan food (laughs) um i'd like to check that out though for reals anybody out there wants to go on a road trip to yogaville hit me up you know how to get in touch with me go on my website there are ways to Involve yourself with me at Twitter. I have two Twitter handles at Zizmos X Y Z M O S S and and the other one is at Tantric Conversation. And I'm not all that Twittery. In fact, it's just linked to my Facebook. And there's a Tantric Conversation Facebook page. And um, I think I set up an email thing too. Um, but you can, you know. And then there's the website. And uh, you know, if people have commented to me on Twitter and stuff like that. It'd be great if you'd also put comments on the um, website. While you're at it, when you're at the website, you can go to the donate page and, you know, hook it up. Some, uh, what, is it, what is it called? Uh, fuck. Uh, it starts with a D. Donna? Something. Put something in the beggar's bowl, wouldn't you? Won't you? I'm a beggar. Bowl. I almost went bowling today down at Bowl America. You go into that place, it is the worst fucking chemical fumes I've ever smelled in my life. It gets me really fucking loopy to walk in there, but it's kind of awesome. The whole place is like very 80s and uh, they have 99 cents bowling games. It seems like you can just go in there and get high and bowl and roll. Fucked up.